This episode is brought to you by Crater Lake Taxi. Competent drivers, clean vehicles, on time, anytime. Crater Lake Taxi, 541-333-3333. I am Citizen 44. Please listen carefully. Hey everybody, Mark Ahrensberg here. Welcome to Citizen 44. Man, there is a lot going on. Some of it good, some of it clearly not so good. Uh, We're going to say goodbye to uh, Tom Petty, who passed away at 66 a few days ago. Tom and his music were pretty dominant in my life in the 80s. And uh, he spoke a lot about the San Fernando Valley, at least in one song. And so I have a, a connection to his music, and I, I appreciate what he brought to us. Uh, he was uh, pretty young. He's only uh, 10 years older than me. So we can all drop at any time, clearly. Uh, I don't know what his health was, of course, but uh, he had a heart attack and uh, didn't recover from that. Actually, I hope that's what happens to me. I have a massive heart attack or something like that, and I just simply don't recover. Hopefully quick and uh, relatively pain-free would be my only asking. That's really all I want out of life is to die uh, not miserably, not in a lot of pain and uh, not a lot of suffering. Uh, Yesterday, Sam and I went for some Mexican food in uh, Phoenix after school and hung out a bit and and cranked the Zeppelin on the Pandora and sang really loud and air-drummed and And that's what my life is with my kids now. I think I've given them all the information I possess. And uh, right, wrong, or indifferent, I'm I'm hoping that that information impacts their lives positively. And uh, they do exciting, fun, healing things in the world. And I I hope I see some of it, but it doesn't matter whether I do or not. Uh, Just knowing who those people are and how much I love them and appreciate them how smart they are, how funny they are, how loving they are, is all I need uh, and, and, and don't need to be here if, if I'm unable to be here. We've had some new tragedy. Uh, tragedies in the, uh, in the realm of firearms are escalating, of course. And uh, this is a clear indication that we are on a uh, wheel of hypocrisy, that we are not making some significant changes. The poor son of a gun... And I say that, the poor son of a gun who killed all those people, that poor sick person who was not taken care of in a way that would eliminate the possibility that they might do that, that they might get their hands on such a totally unnecessary mass destruction killing weapon, um, it's just uh, another sign. It's our teacher uh, showing us that we are, uh, we're not taking care of business. And those teachers will keep coming fast and furious, and the damage will get bigger and greater until we come to our senses. And that's something we have not done. We are not a sensible species. We are not sensible about anything. Practically nothing do we have sensibility around. And, uh, and this is why we suffer. Uh, and this is avoidable suffering. These are things that we can take care of and uh, won't come back and bite us in the ass. But as long as we're selfish pieces of shit and don't care about each other and don't take care of each other, this is the result that we are going to get. And it's only going to get worse until it gets better. And like a drug addict, we may have to hit rock bottom and really 
you know, fuck up big. And I don't know how much bigger we can fuck up. I mean, we're fucking up big. So there you go. I leave on the 29th for L.A., heading towards uh, Thailand for a month. I have given up my apartment. Uh, I was stressing out about having uh, to come up with $2,000 over the next 60 days while not working. And uh, in doing so, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. I invented the idea of getting rid of my apartment because it was necessary for my uh, practical sanity. I try to live life as reasonably as I can and, uh, and, and thinking, examining, uh, doing uh, a thorough investigation of things uh, helps us to uh, come to different conclusions. So I'm giving up the apartment and Joyce today was so sweet in telling me when I got back that uh, I could just move right back in or she would find a place for me to stay transitionally until I settle back into Ashland. Uh, it's coming to a close on my taxi career. Uh, my last day will be the 25th of this month, and uh, I have no intention of driving a taxi ever again. I think I've uh, lived out that fantasy quite fully, and uh, I just cannot imagine getting in that car again and having to uh, deal with the smell of uh, tobacco and alcohol on people uh, for the rest of my life. I've had my fill of uh, having to spray lavender shit in the car to cover up after each individual gets out to not only make it okay for me, but for the next person that gets in the vehicle. Uh, I will not be seeing Boo, I imagine, on this trip. She dropped out about a week ago. Uh, something silly, in my opinion. Uh, a lack of uh, communication, an expectation, a thing. Another thing. And, uh, and I, I actually mailed her a birthday card yesterday. Hopefully she'll get it by the, uh, by the 18th or by the 22nd. And, uh, and I wished her well. And I, I, I do wish her well. And it was a fantastic experience and I wouldn't change a thing. But I'm going back to Thailand similarly to how I showed up the last time, which is with no absolute plans uh, other than, you know, a couple of weeks in Loi with my friends and a couple of weeks in Chiang Rai with my friends. And I actually counted up the people that I know a little intimately in Thailand, and I've got a nice base there. So I'm going to have a lot of fun. I'm going to ride some motorcycles with some racer dudes, some street racing motorcycle dudes. I'm going to do some jungle things. I'm going to go camping. I'm going to do all kinds of interesting things for a month. And then my goal is after that, go to L.A., hang with my parents for a couple of weeks, maybe hang with my sister for a little bit, and then uh, decide what I'm going to do next. Uh, Zoe's been taking driver's uh, lessons. She's taking driving instruction lessons at the high school. It's a written and a driving course. And uh, she's also been driving with Sam's birth mother, Tressa. I think that's all going well. It would be nice if I could get in a little driving lesson with her just for the experience of it uh, before I leave. And I've checked in with both of them. They're both cool that I'm going. Uh, Val seems cool that I'm going, and uh, it's all good. Uh, I went and met with the uh, surgeon yesterday, uh, Dr. Matthew uh, Heisterman, who has been mistakenly uh, uh, mistaken for being Jewish. And uh, I, I called him on that, and he's not. Kind of like the Curb Your Enthusiasm episode where Jerry, or where uh, Jerry, that's a Freudian, where Larry is hiring a divorce attorney he thinks is Jewish, and the guy's got a shofar on his desk, and he uses a lot of, uh, a lot of Yiddish words, and he, he convinces Larry that he's Jewish, and Larry finds out differently and, of course, has to fire him. 
I'm not firing my surgeon. He's a funny cat. He uh, actually uh, did the uh, extraction of Zoe's appendix. I think that went well. He explained to me in great detail, drawing on a dry eraser board of what he was going to do and how that was going to work out for me. And it all seems really good. Everything's good. It's all good. I have enough money for the for the trip, uh, and uh, I don't have to trip out right now financially. Uh, my rent is paid for this month based on my deposit, and uh, and all seems to be working out in my favor, as typically uh, it does. So uh, on the show today, I have Greg Gobelt, a longtime friend, super sweet guy, been through a lot of shit, and uh, has risen risen to the top like the cream does, like the good stuff does. And uh, Greg and I had a good chat, and uh, this is how it went. Hey, Greg Gobelt. Hi, Mark Ansberg. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. I know that you're an evening, late-day person. Right. I've always been that way. And so when I had to switch to a quote-unquote 9-to-5 job... You know, I had to put the effort into changing my own natural body rhythm, and uh, I still do that, but I definitely feel like towards the end of the day, I'm ready for another six hours of like thought and ideas, and that's really when I'm at my best. Right. So it's funny just how much my mind is like very clear on intent and everything and how it all fits, you know, right. and then I wake up in the morning, and I'm like, where the hell's my coffee? So it just takes a while for me to get into my groove, but I'm used to it now over the years, so. So your groove really isn't nine to five, though, anyway. I mean, is your business real estate nine to five? No, it's uh, nine to nine. Right. Yeah, Because people always say, wow, you get to pick your own times and everything. It's so great. Yeah, I get to pick the 16 hours a day. Right. With help from Megan, my assistant and and business partner. She's in a good business to make money with that thing that she has. The thing that she has is, is confidence and a real strong ambition and will. Yeah. You know, but she's also very grounded in not extending that beyond her comfort. When I first started in this, I was just plowing forward like a rocket lit. And uh, does she help you slow the rocket? Yeah, so totally. You can continue to plow, but without burning yourself <laughs> yeah. out. Maybe I'm helping her with all the wisdom that I've learned over the 15 years, and then also just helping her merge into the business. And at the same time, she offers me support. Very impressed with her since I met her. And I started her at 18 when she started doing social media for me. And she just got her real estate license, correct? She did. So So now we're the Deluxe Home team. So it's both of us. And uh, our goal really is to be successful. But at the same time, both of us have time off to, to be there for our own creative pursuits, be there for our families people that we love, and also just to have a a healthier life. Right. I've always struggled with that whole uh, time management from a health standpoint. I've always just kind of plowed forward. I've always done it since I was really young. And and, uh, What do you think is the cause of that? Why do you feel so compelled? Man, I've always asked that. When I was in my 20s and touring with bands, I felt like one of the reasons that you know, I drank as much as I did was it was the only thing that slowed me down enough so that I just wouldn't constantly be rapid. Right. As a kid, I, I was on one of those... The Ritalin thing? I'm the Ritalin kid. We tried it for a while. I, I don't really remember it. I remember going to the doctor a lot because my mom is a hypochondriac. If she wasn't taking me to the doctor, she didn't feel good that day. So I wow. mean, So I was like an experimental kid the whole time. 
which was a drag, but she just said that I was kind of like comatose, and so after a, like a month or something, she just stopped doing the drugs, and then from then on, it just drove my mother crazy. Right, but she appreciated <laughs> that you were somewhat healthy in your craziness. Totally, but I mean, and then, you know, I smoked pot and just ran the gamut that you usually do when you're 18 and 20 and 25, and just, as I got older, you know, I started realizing that it was this kind of power, this movement, and I would just channel it into different things. And then I realized I could just focus on one thing and do it, and then I was quick to move on to another. So I did like a photography show uh, when I first moved to Ashland. When did you move to Ashland? Uh, 1998. Oh, you've been here a bit. Yeah, and so I think about 1999 I did a photography show, actually sold a piece, which was really cool, and it was all this cemetery art that I did. Um, It was in a location, I don't even remember what the name of the store was, but the woman was a member of the Art Walk organization, and uh, she had me have my work there, and she was stoked I sold something. (laughs) And after that, then I was kind of wanting to move on to something else. I like to kind of like do things and attain it, and then I like to kind of move on to the next project, because I've always had a long list of things that I've wanted to do, and so I just try to get to them they'll be i used to run to them and now i kind of walk do you exercise uh no my opinion just my quick that would take some of a lot of your burdens off i i already know that instinctively that your body because you have this energy i know you repurpose it and uh, reappropriate it to things but i think physically just based on what i know about you Mm -hmm. that exercise in my opinion and i am certainly not a medical professional but my instincts tell me that it would take care of a lot of things for you. Uh, I see you as a very physically fit and muscular guy, to be honest with you, and that a little bit in the gym, you would be, and not for the aesthetic of it. I'm vain enough that I would definitely want to, or, you know... um, Pump it up. Pump it up, but... And I used to do a lot more, but since I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia and just the, the autoimmune disease that hit me, then I exercising is a real tricky thing like I can literally do a little bit of exercise and I'll be in bed for three days it's a it's a constant battle to find the balance of like what my body will accept I see and um and you're always kind of slipping back the other way can you explain what that condition is because I don't know if if most people know about it well it's often what's it called fibromyalgia fibromyalgia and um it's first of all often associated with uh only women having it whereas actually 15% of men have it. They think maybe more, and just men don't come forward with it. Mm -hmm. There's varying degrees of it as far as how bad you have it. You know, some people can be just, you know, occasionally a little sore here and there, you know, all the way to bedridden and an extreme chronic pain. It is often called an autoimmune disease, but ultimately, at this point still, it's regulated as uh, overactive nerves and their put on by sudden shock, a trauma, post-traumatic stress, what they call common post-traumatic stress, which would be like um, some kind of personal thing that just shifts your mental paradigm, you know. Fucks you up. Just fucks you up, yeah. Did, did, just, you, did you pinpoint what fucked you up? Yeah, I mean, overall it was the financial crash and along with kind of like an imploding social scene here and just... What was your marital status at the time? Uh, definitely rough, for sure. Did you take any time for yourself emotionally so, to go through and see if you could address those those things? 
meaning post or yeah post. or during oh post yeah I did Ann and I both did a lot of counseling it was rough for both of us because you know I'm in real estate my money comes from real estate yeah. we were invested in real estate and so we lost uh, a lot and I had been like kind of charging forward trying to like stop this redwood tree from falling and you know you can't stop a redwood tree from falling so all I could really do was you do have for a while you have some time I was kind of like equated to for a while there I could push or cut in different areas and get that redwood tree to generally go in the area that I wanted it to because I had to really think this out because was I going to lose my personal house and could I keep my cars and what was the thing and would I lose my business and all this other stuff so I knew where I wanted the tree to land. So I was still at this point, like while it was going on, very active and like deciding where that redwood tree was going to go. And I found a nice clearing between two other trees. And once it went, though, my job was done and it fell and crashed. And that was in October of 2010. And within 30 days, my feet turned bright red and I had these like pins and needles. And then the redness started going up my legs and it felt like I had road rash on the bottom of my feet. I couldn't walk. And then I started growing. I had eight nodules like on each hand, these big bumps that just started growing all over. And my hands started curling up. And I was really scared because I thought like, I'm not gonna be able to play music. I'm not gonna be able to do anything. And then I spent fall of 2007 pretty much in bed the whole time in extreme pain and just very dizzy. But it seemed that what happened was there was an autoimmune disease of which I could have kept spending money, thousands of dollars, to figure out what it was, but at this point it wasn't worth it because I was already spending $10,000 on tests because the only test for fibromyalgia is testing for everything else. So they thought I had lupus and they thought I had this and that and just was, uh, and that's one of the main things about fibromyalgia is now you could maybe be diagnosed in two or three years. Had I gotten in 2005, it could have taken five years. If I got it in the 1990s, I've talked to women and other people that it took them almost 20 years because it was believed that it wasn't real. And so it was real, real mindfuck as far as like everybody not, you know, when people just don't believe you. And then there's this whole social thing about it when you have it because people kind of steer away from you. It's kind of like people with depression. Nobody wants to be around a depressed person, especially people who've had depression because they're like, shit, I may get it again. Like, it is just right. a weird thing right. if you've ever gone through that, and uh, well, which I have. like contagious. No, but mentally you don't want to, you know, Associate you're like, I'm sober. Them. I don't want to hang around with a bunch of drunk yeah, people. Yeah. It might right. pull me down. Like, so whatever. So I yeah, think but in you general. Had a you have a, had a physical. You have a physical thing. Yeah, but people don't want to hear about it. They don't. And the thing is, it's all that, like, you know, if I just beat you up with a baseball bat, and you went, oh, and I was like, hey, stop your bitching, you know, like, you know, <laughs> right. or gave you a thing like, oh, I want to get a cup of coffee. So, hey, great seeing you. Good luck with everything. Right. People suggesting if I eat more kale and if I, you know, burn some incense in my house well, that's, and a bunch of other That but, is naivete compassion. Right. Totally. I mean, they care. I mean, I went through someone, she used to be bugged because people would be so nice to her after she had breast cancer. I said, people don't know what to do. Yeah, they're going to ask you, "Are you okay?" They this is legitimate caring, and they're confused, and they have no clue to what you're going through, but they want to be there, but they really don't know how to be there, frankly. So. No, and I relate. I I heard that, and I I related that to uh, people that I've known that have had cancer. Yeah, and the in the in the uh, search that I have in my head for what to say. Right. 
Thank you. You know how really. to just yeah, totally. It's I mean, but it, but it is an interesting uh, like uh, predicament you find yourself in with on a on a social conversation of how you how you pick up that conversation or how you express yourself or express your love or concern for them. Right. And it is a bit challenging, and I realize it's like that. It's just when something takes five years, when you're doing it for a long time, yeah. you go through trying all these different things, and mostly a lot of them fail. Right. And the reality is, is that the same thing does not work for everybody. So if you talk to people with fibromyalgia, they'll say, "Oh, deep tissue is great," you know, a massage. Other people say, "No, it's uh, it's horrible." I do right. that, and I I totally go into a. Uh, uh, three days of uh, illness and stuff like that. It's a total individual condition, it sounds like. It is, and it's just basically your fight or flight or freeze is stuck on, and it drains your brain of your dopamine, which is controls your pain receptors. And so pain is, you know, multiplied 10 or 20 times what it normally would be. So, like, if you scratch yourself, it feels like a scratch and stuff. But I can feel, and I always thought people were full of bullshit when they said this, but it's like, you know, I can feel clothes and the things on my skin and it You're hurts. so sensitive. Yeah. And like pain is like, like the thing I don't want to get is the flu or a cold because it's horrible. Like it's just, uh, it's just really bad. And the thing is, is that I knew people that had fibromyalgia and I have a lot of friends that had Lyme disease, which only five years ago got... Uh, a test. It's so crazy to me to hear all these things. It's not like you guys are the first ones to be experiencing this stuff. It's, it clearly tells us that we're not talking to each other. Yeah, there's 15 million people that have fibromyalgia. And I think it's, you know, if people say, oh, it's a catch-all thing and it's not really a disease and it's maybe three diseases in one and it, and, and all these things kind of, but each one is like a statement of as if it's not real. And right. I can tell you that who gives a shit what it's called, Right. it's like it is this thing that happens when your fight or flight sticks on and then ultimately you have these overactive nerves and chronic pain, meaning you are in pain every hour, every day since... November of 2010, like every Still? day. Still, Let right now, this moment right now. So what you do is you go, well, if I smoke pot or I take, you know, uh, all these different prescriptions they have, which some work, some don't, a uh, combination of diet and exercise, anti-inflammatory, and you know, just all these different things, you learn to, because that's the first thing they tell you, you're going to learn to manage it. And I was like, well, fuck that. I'm not going to manage it. I'm going to get rid of it. So the first five years I was like not taking any of it I was like I don't know like if I thought that I was gonna have to manage it with everything that was going on at that time I mean I had thought of it numerous times but take just I was just taking myself out check out yeah and the reason that didn't happen was because you know my family and because I love my daughter you know right. and and ultimately well you didn't want to really leave uh, meaning yeah if things were different you wouldn't really want to leave no, I'm somebody that's like, hey, 120 sounds great. I'm yeah. all in, you Runs know. The but but the pain was so deep and all-consuming and thorough that it's just incredible. So then all of a sudden I thought of all the people that I had kind of brushed off. Not not but I knew people that had Lyme disease and when I even when I first heard about that, I was like, that's crazy. But, you know, the hope now is that fibromyalgia will get a uh, 
a test would be the greatest thing because then people don't have to spend five years spending thousands of dollars on all these tests. You know, and obviously some people take those tests and find out they have something else, you know. So, I mean, it's understandable that you would take those tests, but there's not a blood test or anything that you can take to, to figure it out. And it is still very limited on what they can do. There's no real push from doctors or pharmaceutical companies to find a cure because they make so much money off selling you this thing that barely keeps you that keeps you alive and then you know keeps you like crawling through life uh and that's it they want to keep you just barely alive that makes you a good customer that's right yeah that's right so that's one of my like ongoing and current things is this documentary that um sean nipper and i are are working on and it's always something that we'll you know have to have a meeting about from time to time to get focused on exactly what it is but it's called a a bitter fog the story of fibromyalgia and the way that i came up with it is really i just wanted to make a short video to just explain what it is what it's like so a you didn't have to keep telling people what you had because you get exhausted of doing that and you're like, ah, oh, whatever, I'm just sick. Like, it's just, you know, it's just, right. you know, so you, it'd be so much nicer to go, here, just watch this. Sure. To a loved one, to a parent, to a sibling, to people who think you're just a bum. I think it's like 67% of the people are on disability because right. it's so hard to work. Yeah. And I'm blessed with a job where if I'm down for two days, it's not over. Megan can, can kind of move in there for Probably, me and yeah. stuff like that. And, and so, but she wasn't always there. I did it all by myself at, at first. But I think that there's not a single kind of frontline style film that is about fibromyalgia. There's a great audience. There's 15 million people that have it. Mm-hmm. Most people I talk to say I have a friend or I my mother. Yeah, they know somebody. My, somebody everybody yeah. knows somebody. I do now. And yeah. And so, yay. <laughs> so it's just something that needs to be tapped into. I know that Lady Gaga just came out with her, her documentary thing that talks about it. And prior to that... Morgan Freeman and Janine Garofalo and a lot of other people uh, have it. But it seems like most celebrities don't like to talk about it. And I personally believe it's because then they feel that they won't be hired because it'll be assumed that they can't handle the work. Shows weakness. It does. And when you have it, there's a little bit of not wanting to talk about it because people will not hire you or not have you do something. They formulate opinions. Yes, immediately. So I think it's pretty great that she came out to show the world that she has it and it's just not like your grandma that has it or something like that you yeah. know and and uh so anyway so that's I have a question yeah since that time have you done any uh kind of psychotropics no i thought about that the reason i'm asking you is this man your condition stemmed from trauma something right. happened it's not like you just got sick Something happened to you emotionally. Right. Your amygdala was way overstimulated because you got so scared that you scared yourself sick. I am very curious because we've been very lazy about this and lackadaisical about leveraging psychotropics to course correct people, which I think is actually the future of medicine, especially yes. for mental so, illness. So I I don't know what year, year four, year five, year six, but I was like, if there was like a cattle prod... That they could just like shock, you back shock in. me back into well, that's the system. That's what I'm talking about. I would go ahead and do electroshock therapy. And so one of the things that I thought of was, yeah, I thought of a few different drugs actually. Well, I um, can think of a see, couple really simply that I think would potentially, and I think this is this is something as 
marijuana becomes widely accepted, this is the gateway, so to speak, to start going out there and looking at these fucking plants that we have around us that are medicine versus all this shit that we manufacture that is poison and start leveraging the stuff that was left for us to make yeah. us well. And I do, I, I firmly believe that either uh, an ayahuasca ceremony for you or uh, a good guided mushroom trip or something of that nature could be your answer. Yeah, I, I've definitely, I mean, I think it's in the future. I realize that since it's basically like a, it's a body held trauma. That's right. right. It needs to be released. So there's a type of counseling called uh, SE, which is somatic experiencing. Mm -hmm. And it is, without the drugs, it is a therapy that guides you through these discussions that bring up all your pain and shit. And, and, and then they, they get it to activate in your body. And right. I've done some therapy with somebody who knew something of it and studied it a little bit but was not an expert in it and it actually did help and it was uh really odd like you know i mean like uh you know obviously until i see something i'm pretty skeptical have you done hypnotherapy yet? i'm like pregnant yeah yeah not much well it also depends on the practitioner too sure i think all these things do yeah i mean for sure you can go to a bunch of different counselors, but until you get somebody that, you know, is really amazing, then you realize, like, wow, this person is just special and saves people's lives because they are just gifted and, and loving at what they do, right. you know. The way I describe it is, like, it was like floating in an ocean with, like, five-foot swells. Mm. Like, I could feel it. Like, this movement of being in, in my in body. In therapy session? Yeah, oh. yeah. It was really crazy. Wow. And and so I think that's what I've really thought is if I can somehow unload the trauma so I'm not carrying it in my body, maybe I can somehow reverse it. Right. I'm following my life, but in a way it's actually following other people's lives. I'm giving examples of other people that have it all over the country in the UK and things like that. But I'm so. wondering though, if, if you were brave enough, and it, it will require courage of course, sure. to go down this path and be the test subject and maybe be the guy that figures something out and saves 15 million people because <laughs> yeah, you had the balls to yeah. do some experimentation because you wanted to make that shift like not only did you want to make yourself physically better you just want to be better you want to get rid of this kind of cursy thing that yeah, came yeah. upon you that yeah. you didn't ask for yeah, totally. and it was kind of thrust on you and to take that power back through going down some different channels of awareness that could potentially turn it off. Yeah, I think my pragmatic concern about uh, taking psychedelic uh, or mind-altering substance that would, you know, possibly release this uh, demon per se, would I, the, the con would be maybe I'd possibly actually make further damage to my nervous system. So... There is a little bit of like, um, I don't think that'll happen, but what would I do if that happened? And Is there a community online, if there's 15 million people, where somebody has discovered something and they're yeah. sharing it with people? I mean, can, have you Googled over the past? I'm yeah, sure. I mean, I'm part of like a bazillion groups. Yeah, you okay. know, it's interesting. It's like, first of all, it does tend to hit over 45. People tend to get it. They tend to be on disability. They tend to not be very active. They tend to be a bummer. Shuts them off. You know, I, yeah, I mean, it's just what happens, you know. And, and so not 
That's every, what I'm talking about. But he is outspoken as I am about yeah. it and stuff like that. I, you know, um, but that's just because I happen to be this pretty energetic person. So even having it, I still kind of push through, even though in a lot of ways it, it makes me worse. If I was just to retire and hang out by the river and just chill out and everything, I'd probably lessen my pain by 20%, you know, just by not being involved in a, a stressful uh, workaday world. Right. And that is why so many people are on disability. I had a doctor tell me that I'll be fine once I retire. I'm never going to be able to retire. Right. Like, I'm going to have to work, like, unless you know something that I don't, like, you know, I'm going to have to keep working. But yeah, I have thought of that, and it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely on the plate. Every, I would say, every so often, I go through, like, okay, we're going to say yes. Like, we're going to open up to a bunch of things. And then after you do, like, about 20 things, you're like, all right, I'm done for a while. I'm just going to, like, enjoy my life and not try to figure it out anymore. And then after a couple of years, you're like, I'm ready to go back to the experiment, uh, yeah. experimental table and, and see what we have. So. Right. I know that I'm back in that realm again, and I got a bunch of different things that are kind of, you know, on the, on the playlist for helping me get better. It's suspected that Frida Kahlo had fibromyalgia. That's one of the people historically based mm. on diary keeping and other, right. like, uh, you know, where the pain was and all these different things. I mean, obviously the bus accident and all the horrible stuff that happened to her uh, was all part of that, but yeah. it's a first world problem. It's uh, big in the UK, Australia, Ireland, oddly enough, Spain, where I would have thought, aren't they relaxed? It seems like that's where I want to go to relax is Spain. Uh, and the United States, you know, people in, to the most part, second and third world countries uh, have fight or flight but release that energy after each episode and there were more like working on a like I need to eat I need shelter I need to not be killed like though there are a lot of studies done living in a war zone and that is actually where this woman has been working the government uh, Israeli government and and also this uh, third kind of world organization has sent this woman over to do that somatic experiencing to see to help them to release that energy that, that they have so and now she's working with uh, veterans coming back and so it's a pretty cool thing so I would say that my main thing about it is just that anybody who has any kind of chronic pain the thing to remember is that it's chronic they have to live with pain every day and to the extent of wanting to drug themselves or not drug themselves there's also a guilt if you do use a pharmaceutical which i do which made me 70 percent better mm -hmm. though i use other things as well mm -hmm. but there is a guilt of like oh i use a pharmaceutical especially in more progressive towns you kind of it's kind of frowned upon like oh why aren't you trying these other things which you did but they right. didn't work and the important thing is for people to have compassion these people because I would say every three months I go through a day of a depression where it just dawns on me that, oh, yeah, that's right, I'm sick. I, I try to speed through it so I don't have to think about it. Right. But sometimes it's like it's just so overwhelming and depressing and painful. Like you're like, I just want one day to just feel what it feels like to not be in not constant feel. pain. Yeah. Just I can run around the block. I can, I can, I can climb a mountain. I can, I can do anything I want. Things we take for granted. I could wear tight clothing. No, it's like no. I know you really just, want to do that. Yes, totally. <laughs> so I mean, it's just one of these things where I think that's where, for me, for awareness for other people is, 
have compassion for people that have this because it's not easy. Uh, people with fibromyalgia have a 30% uh, more chance of uh, suicide and, and chronic pain in general. Yeah. And more and more vets are coming back and as they're getting older are being diagnosed. Um, so the reality is is that it's hard to be in that state all the time and really people don't need to hear solutions as much as they just need a smile and uh, acceptance. Are you telling me to just shut up and smile? No. Okay. <laughs> I, mean, I will. No, no, no. So, I mean, but I think that's an important thing because yeah. we get caught on all these different directions, but the real human aspect of it is just that until you're in chronic pain and know what it's like, then you realize there's other people that are experiencing that and trying to just get through with daily activities uh, without that taking over your mind, being present with your kids, being present with your spouse, being present with your friends, and not being caught up in that. It takes a lot of willpower and um, ability to do that. Mm -hmm. This isn't something where you can just eat kale and it's all better. It, it is a struggle, but you learn what works for you, and you can trim a lot off by learning to ride it like a wave like I can tell when something's coming on like what I call an episode I can feel it mm -hmm. at the beginning I did you know it just would come and hit me right you know but now I can feel it and I can adjust my life I'd be like I'm gonna leave work an hour early I'm gonna do mm -hmm. this I'm gonna go I'm gonna meditate you know for a while and just calm that this surging feeling that's yeah. coming on and sometimes I get it and sometimes I, I fuck up I missed it you know it's just I to me it's just like waves you know, when you just you catch it, you're like, yeah, right. this is great, or it kind of goes over you, and then there's sometimes you just get sacked. I think it's just important for people to have compassion to that. Have you know? increased your kale consumption? I always ate kale. Okay. That's the, yeah, <laughs> all these things are such a bitch when you like, you're like, I've eaten kale, like, since the 80s. Like, I mean, I'm, like, way ahead of all this food trend. Like, I was eating... Right. You, buckwheat and and millet and kale and greens and all kinds of crazy millet, stuff. isn't that a bad haircut yeah that's, oh, that's right mullet. when you have a mullet a bowl of mullet but when you've been healthy i guess that in closing i'll say this that i thought i was healthy in the sense where uh my weight was good my uh, uh blood work was always fantastic they're like oh my god you're like the healthiest person we've ever seen but i didn't realize that you could electrically short circuit i always thought it was like heart clogging arteries right. uh, lungs all these different like organ type problems diabetes these various things that are affected by consuming uh, various things cigarette smoke too much sugar all these whatever yeah. and then who would have guessed that you know you could be taken out by like you short circuit but there's no like reset switch well there is you just well that's what I mean I am looking for that no 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 it's, there's it. no doubt in my mind that everybody <clears throat> can be well for the most part, yeah. can be put on uh, the correct path. Like the amygdala gets shocked back into its proper state of being. And no, it's like you take the power away from it because clearly it has now controlled the situation and, and says, I'm in fucking charge. When in fact, it's buried way deep. It's the size of a fucking almond and it should be put back in its place. I think it is more like a switch. It, it is not of any, um, the switch moved it. It's not like you are keeping it there by doing something. I've done cognitive therapy and all kinds of other things, and that's great, so you don't spin on your thoughts and yeah. all that. And I've been doing that since I was younger because I've always had just racing thoughts all the time since I was a kid, and, and I had to learn. Well, that's somehow, the ADHD to, kind of thing. I had to learn how to, how to stop that, right. you know, and not go down these, like, potentially depressing channels sure. of thought 
or whatever. But I think it's actually like something happens, it throws the switch, and then you just that's it. And then you just go on with life and your switch is like over here. That's right. So you kind of need that other kind of something that switches it back, you know, that gives uh, your body permission to turn that Stabilize. Off. Yeah. And I think it's the same actually with the ADHD and PTSD. I think all that stuff in the future will be taken care of easily by putting you in a different state of consciousness whereby your body doesn't even know anymore mm-hmm. who you are from that perspective and kind of get shocked into saying, oh, because you've been in the same reality with this, with this condition. To take you out of this reality and put you in a different scenario will actually potentially freak out the condition and kind of it loses its grip because mm. it's no longer well, in this consciousness. I think that's kind of the when you retire, you know, comment. I think the idea is that, you know, when you're put in a different set of circumstances that are less stressful, it's all stress oriented. You know, it's hard to believe that I'm, I'm just definitely less controlling and planning than I was, though I'm still very much like I plan and I organize and I attack what I want to do. But I also know when to give it a rest and when to take out some time, which I think is really important. And I would say that also that the somatic experiencing thing really shows to a certain extent that it's held in your body. And that along with that idea of reset has really hit me down that road I've talked to Ann about it and yeah I'm just trying to figure out exactly what it is and what it looks like and do I have a guide and do I not have a guide or what is it is well here's the thing and then we'll move on yeah thank you (laughs) when when you when you feel that you can do anything and you're willing to do anything yeah contact Brandon Bryant Brandon Bryant uh, does guided ayahuasca ceremony and we're talking about ceremony here not just like popping drugs no 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 we're talking about going through an experience where all kinds of things can happen Fantastically, I've never done it, but I know many people who've done it, and yeah, it changes their lives. Yeah, completely, no doubt. One time, that's it. I know. Kind of like taking mushrooms. They say softens your heart. You do mushrooms one time, and you're a fucking mush pot for the rest of your life as a human in a good way. Right. Sweet, compassionate. You, it awakens something in you. So since I've done it much more than that, is my. Well, you are. You're actually one of the sweetest people I know. This oh, is why seeing you. you suffer like this. Knowing that you have done certain things in your life informs me that I would think you would be even more willing to go down that path knowing that nothing's ever killed you, Mm -hmm. that you've taken. And I'm sure you've taken shit that can kill you. Um, But this is something that's um, uh, tribal and more, uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, And I have a strong feeling like you could literally cure yourself in about 10 minutes. We okay. could do it live here on your show. Uh, actually, that would be fucking awesome to do a live ayahuasca ceremony. I mean, yeah. you're not supposed to be talking into a microphone while it's happening, but you could just... Well, I don't think I'm going to be uh, able to, like, you know... It, no. It would be more like a presence. But you know what Alan Watts did, right? He wrote that book called uh, Joyous Cosmology, where he wrote the entire book while on LSD. Oh, cool. And, uh, I'm surprised fa- I hadn't heard that. It's a fantastic book. Well, it's one of his lesser-known books. Where were you born? Uh, Santa Monica, yeah, 1963. Uh, when I was born, Kennedy was around two months later. Was it two months? Yeah, it was two months. So I was born in August. That's not like you were sitting by the radio and just started crying. You were just crying. Anyway. I was just crying. Yeah, <laughs> right. for whatever. Uh, I remember my dad telling me that Nixon was running for president down our street. And uh, I remember going outside 
waving to a kid who lived on the other side of the street of which we were not allowed to cross streets. So all I know of this kid was like us looking at each other and waving. How close were you to the ocean? Pretty close. Uh, it was near like uh, Pearl and 24th. Did you spend a lot of time on the beach? Yeah. I mean, I was little. We moved uh, 1968. Do you have to, a brother or sister? Any of those other kids? Not at that time. Oh. No. Uh, but I have a sister, but yeah. uh, but not at that time. Older or younger? Then, uh, younger. Oh. So my dad got a job as an early computer programmer in 1968, and wow. we moved to uh, Santa Clara and San Jose when it was God, all even orchards. back then, where Apple just, is now, your dad was doing that thing, that oh, pioneered yeah. the thing that they're doing totally. now. Totally. My dad was all involved in that and all the Silicon Valley stuff, all his friends, everybody, you know, one would work at Hewlett Packard, another one would work at, you know, IBM or the, um, uh, you know, work for the Air Force writing code or something right. like that. There's a whole bunch of jobs down over there. And so I was raised pretty much always across the street from, an, even if you're in a subdivision, there was an orchard somewhere where you would go and uh, throw rocks at each other as a kid and, and uh, you know, fun stuff like that. Hide and go seek. Yeah, yeah. Eat we used to build a lot of forts. We used to have like yeah. dirt clod wars and we used to get in all kinds of trouble. Right. It was like as soon as the soap operas came on, your mom kicked you out. Boom. Right. Kids jettisoned from their house at like 12 o'clock. They're all out. Right. We built go-karts. I mean, it was that time period when you're really outside was where you lived. The wonder years. Totally. It was yeah. just, it was a different thing. Yeah. And then. Who'd your dad work for? Uh, a company that's no longer around but bought out by Burroughs, I think, uh, which was uh, SDC, System Development Corporation. Mm. Was he successful? Was he happy? He worked there for 35 years. Holy cow. Did he like his work? He did like his work. I think at one point, you know, he moved into teaching, which he really liked. Because I think it also gets so advanced that at some point you're like, "Uh, I just don't want to keep up with it anymore. I want to just teach the basics to people who are coming in. Right. And he was a great teacher. Everybody really liked him. And, uh, you know, he was funny and he was hip and cool. Thin tie. Looks like he's out of uh, Mad Men. Yeah. All the pictures I have of him, and that's kind of what I remember. And he had sideburns, and he had, like, you know, this... He was a really uptight dude. Uptight? Uptight. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh. He was in the Marines, and he, and he drank, and he was uh, he was intense, you know? How'd uh, you do with all that? Uh, it was rough growing up in it. I mean, I think that's why I'm is you know, or have been a nervous wreck, is because, you know, I never knew when he was coming from the... Um, the NCO club or you know late at night and stuff like that I never knew if it was gonna switch like it could be like a all of a sudden we're sitting around the table and um, the steak could be overcooked or something like that and you'd get really quiet and then the next thing you knew the table would be flipping over and it was just like you did know. he see action no 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 it was more of his upbringing he had well, a really I was gonna say, well it's either his father or the military had no father, and his mom was uh, a bartender. I, I'll show you these pictures sometimes. Crazy. Oh. And and just like this two-story brick, uh, Cleveland, Ohio, shithole. And, uh, you know, mom bringing home whoever. And, and uh, my dad passed away in 2014, which is devastating. Yeah. And it's still devastating to me. Yeah. Like, it's just... I feel like it's like divorce or something. It's one of those clubs, you know. Yeah. It's like, and you go through it. And when you start losing parents, it's like, uh, I don't know. I remember before he left, I whispered in, in his ear because we're 24 years apart. And I said, I'm just 24 years behind you. I'll see you soon. Yeah. And uh, at 13, he built his own dark room. 
and had a twin reflex wow. camera and stuff yeah. like that. At 13, just started wow. it himself and everything like that. And then he was a photographer in the Marine Corps. And when my mom and dad divorced... How old were you? 13. Yeah, I remember so much from it. At the same time, on my 13th birthday, my parents were like just weeks from telling me that they were divorcing. And my, I had a pet cat and it was killed on my birthday. Jesus. And we were all sitting around at Marie Callender's around one of those, this is like, you know, 1976, around this like pot, this tureen of soup, right? And like nobody's talking. I look back and I go, it's the end of their relationship. They got to tell their son who's 13 what's going on. And How so- How old's your sister? She was born in 71, I'm trying to think. So she was five. Yeah. And then ultimately, my dad said, I'm moving out. I remember him grabbing his like laundry basket, and he told me everything. And I remember thinking, like, wow, that would be a lot better. I just remember thinking... You were think- relieved. I was, yeah. Because yeah. I didn't... I mean, because I didn't have to live in that state of, like, anxiety all the time, yeah. you know, which was set my life in course for this, like, you know, anxiety-ridden kid, you know. Well, that's probably and, why you were susceptible to what your condition is Yeah, completely. Now. It was, yeah. like, a definitely a good setup. Yeah. And so, anyways, that happened, and then, and then I saw him again. Like it seemed like a month later, and he had a beard, and he let his hair grow, and he had this like cool necklace that he made, like no more ties. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe if he had to teach or something like right. that. So we started growing pot, and I was just like, "What?" And he had quit drinking, huh. but he was still pretty uptight. Yeah. You know, they what they call dry drunk. It's like you know, you don't deal with all the other stuff. You quit the drinking, but you're still kind of that person that could like. Well, yeah, he could just you know, if you pushed him too much, he'd snap. Yeah, but he changed a lot. We did a lot of backpacking, did a lot of great things, and um, you finally had a dad, kind of. Yeah, I mean, he was always really cool, and I always really liked him. I just it was hard being around him during those time periods, and he didn't know how to be a dad. He had no idea. He had no training. Yeah, nobody to look at. And he was fucked up because he had he didn't know what to do. He always says that his uh, his closest thing to a dad was his drill instructor, who was screaming at him all the time. Yeah, totally. And later on, when we went to counseling, I said, "Well, you know, you you know, their purpose is to like beat you down and build you yeah. up." And I said, "You did the first part, yeah, but you forgot to do the second yeah, part." Yeah, I mean that's I mean that's you the know? ultimate compassion. I feel so sorry for that poor man. That yeah. just didn't know what to do. And he was programmed to be this thing. Yeah. And I got that. You know, yeah. that's the reason that I was, like, all into, like, working with counseling with him. And I realized that as a, at the time that we did that, that I was an adult and it was going to be me who was going to organize it. How old were you at that time? I was uh, 29, 30, 31, somewhere in there, I think. How did your life at home change after he left? Well, it, for a while, I lived with my mom, but right. I immediately moved in with my dad. Oh, you did? I did, yeah. Oh. And my mom took my sister and moved away. Huh. Because the other side of this is, like, my mom is, like, you know, is uh, is nuts. Okay. So she's... Uh, Look at the bookends you're in between. I know, yeah. You're lucky you're alive, really. I'm lucky I live with my dad. Really, I mean, because... Like, it was the, it was the so lesser much, of evils? Totally. Oh. And, um, you know, though it was another circumstance of, like, expectations and things and all that. And, of course, you know, when you hit that age, when we moved to the Santa Cruz Mountains when I was, like, 16, 17, of course, you know, I knew exactly how to figure it all out. And I left home and and started down a road of, like, uh, figuring it out on my own, which Mm -hmm. was, like, hard. But I was always, like, 
driven though I just didn't you know lounge around and play a video game I like you know I was in bands I rehearsed three nights a week and I I I was a roadie for another band that toured and that's how I kind of learned the circuit is I just took notes of all the club owners who they were they knew me and I and just this is when you were 16 how, 17 yeah huh. uh, 18 19 at that okay. point okay and that's how I learned how to tour was by touring with uh this band called Dow Chemical which had uh Bill Walker and uh, Rick Walker and uh, Rob Bresney, who's the astrologist, who's like, um, he's an international astrologist. Mm. And uh, Did you play drums at the time? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was the drum tech, and I had a friend of mine, Mike, who's the guitar tech, and we would tour with them. So then when I got a band together, we would open for them, and it was just this kind of like path on how to do everything. It was like, here, learn by example. And that's how I learned. And I just, then from then on, every band, we just, I already had all my connections to all the clubs and and just kept going. And that's kind of where I learned to do beginning of marketing and, and how to plan things out and how to plan tours out. And, you know, you have to plan your marketing ahead of time because everything's ahead of you right. as you're traveling and right. stuff. So that's where my first interest in managing and marketing came in was with the with music and stuff like that. And Rick Walker was... Probably the only like male adult figure that I had like uh, at that age that I was that would be like you need to do you need to you need to practice more you need to like uh, you know he was there for me and to give me advice and I appreciate being it. your guardian. Yeah, completely. Yeah. So I always kind of you know have a a spot in my heart for that person and other people who kind of took on the reins of being like a. a uh, at different times in my life, mentor. I've always had like a mentor yeah. or somebody that I realized that I can learn from, you know, by by listening to them. Though I would say when I was younger, I didn't tend to follow through with a lot of things they said. That's but normal. it did soak in. Yeah, of course. You know what I mean? Like, it did soak in. This is why I'm done talking to my kids. I've said everything I can say. I really <laughs> have. I don't have any more information for you. Now I'm just going to watch and see what happens. Yeah. And I do get... <laughs> so I, funny. Well, I do get evidence of, that they're listening. Because occasionally my daughter will send me a quote from Einstein or Sam will say something unfucking believable to me. And so I realize literally my work is done. Now I'm just here to be with them and, yeah. and enjoy whatever it is that they're going to do and go off into my fucking sunset. Man and I just went through that with uh, uh, Carissa going off to college and leaving and stuff like that. Where's she going to go to college? She's at SOU. Okay. I think we were pushing her to like do all the things that we wanted her to do. So we were like, go to school and at least Portland. Yeah, you know, go to Portland. We still we could, a buffer zone. I could drive at any moment to get to you, and I'd be there in four and a half. But I don't think she really wanted to be that far. Well, she likes the nest. That's yeah, a good yeah. sign, actually. That well, she likes to- yeah. I mean, not so much because she came back her first summer. And we were like, oh, this is going to be so great. Because everybody warned us like after the first summer, like they're not going to come back because they because they found other. They're things. just they're on with their life. Right. So you maybe have one summer left. Right. And she came back and she was like, oh, I want to move in with somebody else. And we we're like, oh, like, <laughs> but I still want to go to all the cool concerts. I want to go see the Shins and I want to go, you know, right. go on camping. But uh, definitely, we've just come to that comfortable place to a certain extent where it's like. If she doesn't want that right right now, why push it no matter what it is or anything no like that? And, and um, so we've kind of realized that it's taken us a little bit of time. And But she's a great kid and she's doing great. And I'm proud of her just as the person that she is. 
know. So we shared the fact that we both love to play drums, but you clearly have been doing it way longer than me because I didn't even find them till I was 40. So how, how did drums begin for you? Did you play music in school? I first started playing guitar because I fell in love with John Denver. I heard that and I was like, wow, it's amazing. And it was one of the only times like where my dad, um, like he bought me a guitar, which was How like were you? 11, okay. I think. What was the song, John Denver song that put you over the top? That whole, the Rocky, uh, Rocky Mountain High album. Right. There were a lot of songs on that, yeah. you know, which I, I posted some on YouTube where I did Rocky Mountain High and I did... Darcy Farrow, which I always really liked that song. It's a real melancholy song, and it just always really affected me. But, you know, it was just that album that came out and the fact we were backpacking, and that backpacking really took on a thing. We were in the High Sierras a lot and um, did some pretty crazy stuff, you know, hiking when I was 13 to some beautiful areas. Just you and your father. And friends, like friends from work and stuff like that. And and, um, later on with uh, my stepmom, Lois, and we did all kinds of things. But guitar was really like, and then I wanted to get a harmonica and I made, I I had cut up a pair of underwear to get the elastic strap. And then I took a metal coat hanger and I made this like harmonica holder and then when my mom found out I was cutting up my clothes she was all pissed off but I was like look how cool it is though I just made this man and um and so and I like you know back in the time when you had to make your own shit like as a kid you couldn't just go out and go I want that thing that Bob Dylan has because your parents would be like yeah totally or instant gratification but your parents would never you know when you were like middle class like that or you know lower middle class it's like you're no you can't have one of those no, there's an oil can we in the ju- garage use that right we just got you this guitar and right. that's the one gift for the next five years right. so you just better enjoy it and then i was always tapping on things and i remember my mom saying like oh you should just you know you should try out drums and stuff oh like your mom that. said that yeah oh that's super. that was cool. really cool yeah she liked to dance and yeah. she's very very sweet and very very loving she's just mentally ill yeah and so yeah. um which we all are to some degree. Yeah, and some to others, yeah, uh, a deeper yes. degree. Yeah. And so uh, then I took a, a class in high school, and then I was in the junior high um, jazz band. And then I was in my first band pretty young at 13, and we did Kiss covers. <laughs> and like awesome. that was my switch from like listening to what my parents listened to right. to where... I found Kiss and then and I lived in San Jose and it was like that was just like you know it was all about that time period and so I went to a lot of I don't know if anybody remembers like Day on the Greens that they had in California at the Bay Area but it'd be like five major bands one concert $19 right so it'd be like Led Zeppelin Heart Ozzy Osbourne uh, what was a band called 415 there was like you know I saw Triumph and I Mm. saw UFO and like all these 70s bands of that time and oh my god just so many Rush and did you ever see Kiss? Uh, no I never saw Kiss never got a chance to see them I got to the front of a line at the forum and saw Purple Lights and then I felt a tap on my shoulder and then I turned around and vomited on a female police officer so I never saw Kiss either they took you out right they took me away yeah that was my one that was my first time in jail yeah wow overnight too 17 well, that's about right. Yeah. You know, I say all those concerts. The reality was I was always, generally always on, uh, always took a hit of acid. So I 
I have these things where I remember, like, you know, you how you see, like, uh, 40,000 feet and legs because you're crouched down. Right. And you see that. Right. That's what you see. And you see all the other people having, like, epileptic fits and whatever's going on because <laughs> so many damn drugs. And then you'd stand up and it'd be like, whoosh. And it's like you could see, like, everything's waving and everything like that. So, yes, I've seen all these bands. Right. Now, do I remember them? Like, as far as, like, that was a great set. Uh, not so much. There's There's some. But those big shows... It was always about like taking acid, which is really funny when I look how did, back how on did, it. How did you get turned on to acid? A drummer friend of mine. Oh, that's um, right. You were in the music business. Well, and drummers are always... Now, this was even in high school. He just thought it'd be a great idea to, to take acid. So three of us took acid in Santa Cruz and then um, went into a place called Eric's Deli down there to try to eat, not knowing that you can't eat. So literally, we put these sandwiches in our mouth and they kind of like a dog they just rolled out the other side so it was a big like mess and we also when they asked for our name we were so confused that we gave another name so then when they were calling our name we weren't getting up and they had these like red and white checkered tablecloths and we were just our minds were just being blown so we got on San Lorenzo River and followed you followed all the way down to the boardwalk and I remember looking at the ocean and it was like and it was like oh and you could hear the seagulls and it was like deafening and then I would like look at the pier and turn around and it would be like silent and then I would like turn around and look at the ocean and be like so I was like this one we're peaking and so then I walked out to the sand I was like digging my hand in the sands kind of like a Charlton Heston damn you moment at the end I was just like looking up and everything and the sun started to burn out like on that TV show Bonanza when that map starts yeah. catching fire yeah. the whole sky started doing that and then the whole it just the sky melted all the way to the horizon line and then the wharf started falling in the ocean and then just everything was going and then uh, I, I don't even remember what happened after that and then I had to get on a bus and take a 45 minute bus all the way back to Boulder Creek I came home I walked in like nothing was going on and my dad was pissed and he was like where have you been? And I said, I'm on acid. <laughs> because all my life I've been scared of him. Yeah. And and he didn't know what to say. I was just honest. I was like, I'm on acid. Just didn't look scared or something. Right. I just, uh. all that was just gone. And I sat in the living room with uh, my stepmom and my dad and uh, just started watching TV with them. And it made him so uncomfortable they both left. Did that change your relationship with him? No, I think it just furthered the thing that it was time for me to leave. Mm. Um, because, and years later he told me when I moved out, because I just moved. He was like, get your shit together or move out. And so he went to work and I moved out. Yeah. And Where'd you go? And I wasn't doing well in school. and, and uh, But, you know, I didn't have much direction. Like, he wasn't good at, like... Being a he was dad. really focused on his own shit and not so much on, you know, you either go in the military, you get a job or whatever, you right. know. And, and I was a musician, and he was like, uh, you know, I didn't even know what to do with that. And then I left the next day, but years later he said, like, you know, he was, it broke his heart that it was just to come home and find I wasn't there. That really upset him deeply, yeah. you know, which he I only found out when I was like, you know, 30 some yeah. years old later. But yeah, I played in a Kiss band. We won first place at our middle school. Hmm. We played uh, rock and roll all night. And, uh, then I moved to Boulder Creek and got involved with this kind of... My parents thought I joined a cult. Where's uh, Boulder Creek? 
It's um, Santa Cruz Mountains. Okay. So kind of like Felton and then uh, Ben Loman, Brookdale, and Boulder Creek. Okay. And it's uh, similar to Ashland, not as... Um, not as big or as wealthy as, you know, it's more just like a little hideout place for everybody. I mean, yeah. it's probably very expensive now, but... And I joined this these guys that were into, like, um, Pink Floyd and, you know, UFOs and, you know, metal pyramids, uh, you know, everywhere. You know, I'm surprised they didn't wear, like, a pyramid hat. And and the band was called Worthy Cause, and, and they just had, they had two albums of material, and we would go and just run through it like a live show all the time. And I rehearsed Monday, Wednesday, Fridays for like two years. But I really got my chops up. Mm. It was really, really good. And then I was down in Santa Cruz at a punk club and saw this band, Dow Chemical, and that's where I met Rick, and I was like, oh, I wanna take drum lessons from that guy, he's really good. And he's an amazing drummer. Mm. Um, and um, very talented and that's kind of what got me on that and it was a great ride but I really didn't have a job from time to time so that was a big thing for me it was like took me a long time to figure out what I was going to do for money I just didn't think of it much but you know I was getting older and older and had no money and being a a bum musician and sleeping on people's couches uh, charming at 24 but when you're starting to be like 34 <laughs> it's like not as cute <laughs> yeah you quickly find out that that it is not a thing that women find enduring um but it just kind of happened for me i was a i worked at restaurants and while i was a musician and all that kind of added up and i got a job working for marriott i worked there for seven years and then a friend of mine phil got me a uh, a job up in Portland in 95 and uh, so I mean still recently in the sense of like I went up there and then I really started to like I did, wasn't playing music anymore and I started realizing I was good at what I did and I was good at which was um, budgeting and cutting food costs and doing a great job as a chef and an executive chef mm. and I just kept getting promoted and pro and making more money than I had Where'd ever you learn made the before. chefing business? Just from starting off as a dishwasher. Huh. You know, just and then you're a prep cook and then, you know, and I worked at, you know, three different restaurants in Santa Cruz, then Marriott for seven years. We cooked almost everything there. And uh, I don't know, it just kind of again the management skills of the of that all kind of came together and then eventually what happened was the management and marketing and the working in a restaurant turned into running restaurants mm -hmm. and then I became an executive chef and then a manager and then I moved to Santa Cruz to become the general manager of uh, the Apple Cellar Bakery oh we used to have that here that's right for a long time I used to go there all the time it was great. I mean, there's both wholesale and retail, and the food was really high quality, and it was with my friend Rob, and it was great. And then we did a cover band thing together for a while, and I just realized that I didn't want to do covers anymore. I wanted to, like, write something, like, passionately. Like, yeah. I really wanted to explode out something, yeah. you know. But never could seem to, like, get it together because of I wanted a specific thing and it just the path wasn't I wasn't finding it mm. and then I went to Burning Man and I realized that I had to change everything in my life what year was that? 2000 huh. and I went 11 years in a row wow 
Yeah. Quite a record. That is a record. That was some of the best years, though. I mean, maybe like 98 as well. And, you know, people would argue it's 95 to 2005. But there was a great arc. Because when I went in 2000, he was still on a bale of hay. Yeah. You know, and, and then it's like then that big arc of what happened. And, and Did we know, see each other at Burning Man? Yeah, you we, were. We did, at our, of course, we did. I went to your wedding. Went to with, wedding. With you gave me Debbie. the gift. Yeah, you you went. I gave you a photograph. Gave me a photograph, and oh, you still have that photograph. God. Yeah, that was two thousand four. Uh, yes, it was. Fantastic. Yeah, and we got yeah. legally married there too. Like our uh, marriage certificate says Black Rock City on it, mm. and the county which we were married is Lovelock, Nevada. Ah, pretty funny. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's so, why I met you then. Okay. Yeah, that's wild, dude. I know. I know. I it was just recently like I ran into the we have a stack of these different photos because of course I have this house that has all windows and no place to hang photos, and I went through all our wedding stuff that we had saved and everything, and and it was all in this this one area with your photograph right there, and it was just all this stuff. What's the photograph of? Uh, it's a New York scene. Ah, uh. yeah, and I I was always drawn to you because you just had an uh, irreverence and a, a, and a spark that was so much different than I was experiencing in Ashland. I was really looking for something edgy and, you know, wanted more to be edgy and kind of, you know, that's the kind of thing that I'd want to do. Maybe if I was in a real edgy place, I'd want to do something different, but I right. felt like everything was too tranquil and calm here and I needed I every ad was using papyrus the font <laughs> yes. literally sneak preview the whole fucking paper when I got here was papyrus other than his story writing yeah. I just you know and then so and then I met you and you're just like a spark like just we had fun like, doing your branding yeah 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 it was cool yeah 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 it was cool looking too it was very cool it was ahead of its times way before Mad Men came out oh yeah and then, and then all this mid-century shit is like I thought happening. it was badass looking stuff yeah. yeah it was fun I have all that branding I, I kind of save all that's like my path, you know, where yeah, it yeah. is, I kind of save Your all time that line. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> time Your line. Facebook timeline. Yeah, yeah, totally. Before, right. Right. In a hard copy a real, version. A real, right. right. I think they call those photo albums. I, I yes, think. that's yeah, what they're called. Yeah. Yes, you flip, you use your hand and you go to the next page. Like a book. It works like a book. Yeah. Except it's a purely visual experience. That's right. And you have to hold it. And you can sit together on a couch and, and do it. Yeah, and like, you don't need power. You don't have to plug it in. You don't have to recharge it. They're really cool. Yeah. And they last pretty much forever. Yeah. At least your lifetime. Yeah, hundreds of years. Yeah, I threw my <laughs> wedding and bar mitzvah album in the trash when I went to Thailand. Really? I literally did. I threw them away. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. That was a, quite a cleanse. Well, sorry, Dad, but I'm going to say it. Both my albums, my father is not smiling, not once. Does not look happy about being there. Doesn't bode well for me wanting to save the fucking pictures. Yeah, right. I, I just don't. I mean, he's not the same man that he was, clearly, but... Uh, yeah, you look at the pictures, you know, all the family, the going around to the tables. It's I just, I don't think he was happy to be. Yeah, that's there is relevant. Yeah, it's just not happy to be. Yeah, he too had a father and all of that fucking bullshit we got to deal with. I'm, I'm the generational chain breaker, by the way. I will not take assholeness into the future with my children if I can help it. That's that's been my ultimate goal is not do those things. Thank you for the, the reference. So I could see what I want, what I don't <laughs> yeah, right. want. I appreciate that. And I love him for that, actually. Because right. it is, it's made me become me and not just follow him. Right. Because we do that, typically, unfortunately. Uh, probably too big of a percentage of us just end up becoming uh, too much of our parents. And we just cyclically fuck up the world instead of finding our own way 
and surviving. Yeah, shit. I think my course was always to not do that. Like, yeah. I was always clear from an early age of not doing that. Yeah. You know, not inflict any of those same kind of things, you know. So, yeah. Chris is raised with parents who, like, have talked to her a lot about things and been, you know, emotionally open and, and sharing and all those kinds of stuff. So, right. when we go sit down to talk with her, she's like, oh my God. Do I have to fucking talk? Are we going to share some more? Like, <laughs> like yeah. it's totally like the opposite like she's like well you know we're like so let's talk about our feelings you know and she's like oh god i'd i'd rather like uh take a finger right i think that's just what happens though so you try not to push those things how old is she uh 19 oh yeah yeah she'll be 20 in march still a teenager in a lot of ways yeah you know but that's okay you're living again up in the hills here in northern california so i was until i moved out and then right. it was a series of like living everywhere. Like for the next few years, I was homeless for two and a half years, probably. Yeah. Um, and I. But was you made that work. Drinking a lot. Um, well, I don't know if they called making it work. I mean, well, I you was, survived it. Yeah, I mean, I was a creative homeless person. I always am like, you know, like, you know, if I was homeless, I'd have a way better box than that. You right. know, I'd like, I'd have it all reinforced with different kinds of things. I remember that I, I invited my dad over to where I was camping. Yeah. Which was actually uh, at Red, White, and Blue Beach, which was a nude beach on California by Davenport, which is about like nine, eight miles outside of Santa Cruz. Yeah. And it's a famous place. It's been around forever it's a privately owned it was it's no longer exists and it was just a red white and blue mailbox by a bunch of like brown grass on the coast and you just turned down this road and you went down there and that's what it was and you had a campsite and everything so i finally wanted to move to you know you had to move to if you work if you went to a campsite state campgrounds you had to be out every 14 days you couldn't stay there this place i could stay all kinds of crazy stuff going on. It was you Burning know, Man like, for you as, it, as a young person. Kind of, yeah, there were like swingers. It was a swinger place to meet. It was like uh, uh, other homeless people or dads beating child support. You know, like yeah. these kind of people on the fringe of the law and stuff like that. And we used to all pitch in what we had and had this huge cast iron pan that was like, I mean, the biggest thing I've ever seen. It's huge. It was like two feet wide huh. and like five inches deep. And we would make all this stuff and buy cheap beer and cheap cigarettes. And um, But I had this really cool camp. I did a French drain around my tent and had this, like, you know, tarp. And I had a wood pile covered with, you know, I made this wood area. And I remember bringing him there. And he's like, I'm like, I'm camping. He's like, you're homeless. I'm like, I'm camping. You're homeless. I was like, I'm camping. He goes, no, if, you, if it's over two weeks, <laughs> it's not camping anymore. So, because I'd been there for so long, and I was obviously so proud of my campsite and everything, but it was I was homeless. Like I, I started off in a tent, worked my way up to like a cab over camper, just kind of laying there. It wasn't on any kind of car because I couldn't afford a car. Underground in a root cellar, which I, ugh, God, it was horrible because I hate spiders and they're all over a root cellar. It's not like cement; it's dirt. And there's oh, like, it's a root cellar, and there's roots coming out of a root cellar, and like. It was creepy, and you just would sleep and hope nothing crawled all over you, and you'd wake up and then see like a bump trail going across you, like you were in this freeway, and it just went around you. But it's hard being homeless because it takes all day to find a shower, you know, right. and how are you going to get there? And if you take fifty cents to go take the bus to to the university and shower there, by the time you're ready, you go to a cafe, have a cup of coffee. Now you don't have really any money. 
and you go look for a job, but it's late in the day. And, and, you know, it was just hard to get your shit together when it takes so long to clothe yourself and clean yourself to get ready for a job. And, and like I said, I was drinking a lot and, and how'd you afford to drink or you just drank other people's booze? Uh, what money I had went that direction. And then, um, yeah, drink other people's booze or, you know, if we were playing gigs, we got free beer and so were you playing music at this time while you were homeless? Yeah, some of it. Huh. Yeah. I mean, I just kind of traipsed around from different areas. Because sometimes I wouldn't be in a band, and then I'd land a gig, and I'd be in that band for a while. Right. Or we'd put something together in the last two years, and then break up, and then I would be... And I had a bunch of dysfunctional relationships all throughout that whole time. But I think that was one of the things when I finally got my shit together that I was really surprised about was that, like, when I, when I bought a home... I, my dad never imagined I would buy a home. I never, never imagined I would buy a home, and it was a very odd thing for me to the antithesis of being homeless. Yeah, and having experience for so long in different, you know, situations that weren't good. Like you know, you put yourself in danger a lot of times when you're homeless, and and also just times where it's just raining and you're wet and you have no place to sleep, and people are saying you can't sleep on my couch anymore, and you know, you're just crying and you're despondent and you're you want to get your shit together but you're unclear exactly how to do it yeah you know again have great ideas at night wake up in the morning and you're wet and dirty and tired and you gotta get up and find a shower and so i spent a lot of time in cafes uh bumming export a cigarettes and talking about uh various kinds of uh, socialism or uh you know uh herman hess books or you know, people had like berets and they're all like, well, yes, it's Santa Cruz. So it's just like a lot of people doing nothing. Right. You know, there's like uh, uh, this place, Pergolaces, we used to call purgatory because you would just, we just seemed like everybody ended up there always. And even when people moved away, six months later, whew, back. And you'd be like, what happened? It was like, ah, it just didn't work out and everything. <laughs> so I always used to joke like, they'll be back, they'll be back. And then occasionally, very rare, somebody would leave and you'd never see them again. And you're like, wow kind of odd because generally people always came back so in the end when I left I always thought about that because did you ever go back no no I mean I went back one time you think they're sitting in a coffee shop now going whatever happened to Greg (laughs) no it was more my own like just realizing that um, I left yeah you know and it was the best thing for me like leaving Santa Cruz at the time that I did I I was married and I got divorced and it was a nightmare of a relationship and How long was very abusive we were only together for a year yeah. and then I stayed legally married for a bunch of years yeah. you know I just never got a divorce but right. it was it was doomed from the beginning it was our second try like somehow getting married was going to make it worse and she was a combination of like my dad and and uh, and uh, your mom my mom kind of yeah it was like the abandonment never like the abandonment of like a mom the way that she was never there really and um and then just volatile as unavailable as and angry yeah yeah, yeah. she was half, combo. half puerto rican and half russian so i said she oh had blonde goodness. hair blue eyes and she threw shit <laughs> that was her own little saying wow. for herself but i mean it was nuts and so yeah. and i was really like i just didn't have enough self-esteem to do anything about it right like i just was like totally sick in the sense where well, I you thought, probably like, felt that you deserved it and you're lucky you had her there was a lot of like 
self-punishment and, and deserving of this and stuff and, and, and not having any self-esteem of like I deserve or even know what something healthy looks like. Right. And, you know, I had a big downward spiral. And then about the time I was in this place on Wilkes Circle in Santa Cruz in this house with like five other college guys and the house was all crooked like the old Batman TV show like the villains you know it was all crooked I used to say I didn't have to clean because all the dirt would just roll into one corner (laughs) and I had a black and white TV and um, and I was depressed and I was doing uh, doing a lot of drugs and drinking, and I was falling deeper and deeper into depression. And I think at that time, you know, I mean, it's been some distance now, but I know that for the first 10 years after that, I knew for sure that if I had stayed, I probably wouldn't have lived because mm-hmm. I was just on a super downward spiral. I would do things like, you know, drive my motorcycle at 60 miles an hour down where Wilk Circle goes just right down used to be an old uh, World War II emergency landing area so the streets really super wide and then it's just the ocean mm-hmm. just a cliff and I used to just you know and I, and I I just did a lot of like kind of suicidal type things I was just like nothing ever happened but I and know at that time I was just yeah I was tempting fate and so I got a phone call from my friend Phil who had moved to Portland and I remember the phone call I picked up, picked up the phone like old style phone with a cord and uh, the, my room was all blue because of the TV and he was like I got this job for you and they're gonna pay for your travel getting a U-Haul and your first month in a place first and last and I was gonna make a dollar more than I was making and I was like, I'll go. And I swear he saved my life. Like yeah. Phil Johnston, who just, uh, I'm always appreciative of him for doing that. And I moved to Oregon and my whole life changed. Because mm. Santa Cruz is super expensive. I got to Oregon, I was making more money. I paid 475 for a room in this shitty fucking home. And I paid 425 for a one bedroom apartment that looked great mm-hmm. that had three pools three hot tubs and um i mean it seemed like i was rich all of a sudden i just was like and then all the bars legally had to serve food in oregon so you know so if you bought a beer for three dollars they had to have a burrito for three dollars and stuff like that and bars closed a half hour later it was 2 30 and there were strip clubs every corner and stuff like that and i was like uh wow this is the greatest place in the world and I was just really excited I'd never seen a strip club before this is when there was only a million people there's like 2.2 I think or something like that million now it's doubled in size but I just loved it it was dreary as hell and and I had a hard time with the sunlight uh, the lack thereof but I just you know I suddenly like was making more money than I ever had I went from complete depression to this really great thing and um being from this feminist town of Santa Cruz, I suffered this like strip club guilt for uh, you know the first uh, year that I lived there. You know until uh, this dancer told me uh, she said, uh, "What the hell? I'm doing this. <laughs> I do this." It was she wasn't on stage? It's just her talking because we had different friends and through different music things and work and all this stuff like that. I always seemed to find the fringe of uh, of anywhere I go. So I had a lot of friends that were dancers and. And so they were like, no, there's nothing worse than somebody that feels all guilty sitting in front of you. Like, we want somebody to enjoy themselves, you know, like, 
this kind of piousness or whatever is Not like the bullshit. place for a strip club. No, it's yeah. just like so it was awesome. So, you know, I got schooled and, and it was a great place to hang out and it was such a great city experience for me. I did love music Portland. there? No, I really worked. I worked very hard there is what I did. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I was really unhappy because, you know, I was alone and I just didn't feel like it was the town where I'd meet somebody in that kind of town. I needed to be in a different town. Yeah. And then when I got the job down here, this was more likely for a place for me to be. And meet. you worked at Apple Cellar here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I came down in 98 and then I remember I went to Burning Man in yeah. August 2002 yeah. and then planned my exodus from there and I, I was there in 2001 I think I left in 2002 oh yeah I left at the end of 2001 actually and was going to open my own restaurant mm. called Here. The, yeah called the Wasabi Lobby ah. and uh, it was going to be northern Japanese to fit both winter and sushi because winter they have these wonderful amazing like meals in a bowl mm-hmm. not just udon noodles and stuff right. like that there's nobody here really doing like northern japanese food but yeah. it's just a whole different region but but i knew i wanted these weird kind of casablanca fans and this weird it was going to be really like i wanted these flames on the two sides coming out uh when you entered yeah kind of like uh, dante's up in portland mm-hmm. i had a business plan uh got high grades at all the banks and everything was fine i was looking for a location and i met a real estate agent and i was like tell me about your job so you, that's how it all started yeah i was like i just looked at her and she just she just looked like she had her shit together and she it was kathy kennedy who was like oh uh, my god she's like a she sold us our house yes yeah, she's like an icon <laughs> oh she's just like yeah. amazing that's and funny. she really was nice and took me under her wing and and really was the one really the single person responsible for me getting into real estate and i respected her a lot she was kind of you know that uh you know rich dad poor dad or yeah. you know rich mom poor man yeah. and she, or mom she was my rich mom she was you know my uh financially responsible mom that she got her shit together mom yeah and and would take the time to explain it to me you know in a non-condescending way that was you know helpful yeah so i was like hmm and i had just met ann and and i was now a dad so i was like do i want to have because when i left the apple seller we had 62 employees Right here, they had 62 employees. Because it's retail and wholesale. Right, no, it was a big space, And we were all the way to Cave Junction Uh. and and all these. We had had all the Starbucks accounts. It was just a lot. And and I think that's the max that we had. But the point is, is that it's mostly a counseling job. Like, because people are like, you're trying to keep them stay. Oh, you just broke up with your girlfriend or boyfriend. Keep from quitting. And you're like, yeah, it's just like, so there's enough people where there's always a problem every day. And there's always somebody not showing up. And right. if you're ever going to own a restaurant, don't make it 24 hours. Even bars close for six hours where you can just shut the door and go home and sleep. Right. Tw- Take a break. 24 hour. You Fucking can't. siesta, man. Baker doesn't show up at night. Then the driver doesn't show up at six in the morning. Right. And then your cook doesn't. You could work like for days without right. sleep. So, right. so uh, I thought, wow, I could have all those employees and be up all night long. Or I could have no employees and just do the marketing and stuff that I like. So I kind of switched for that. One of the problems was right after uh, 9-11 and the Twin Towers, the banks weren't giving out money to anybody unless you were a widget maker. In other words, unless you had a manufacturing job of they ordered it, you built it, and then you sent it. Not you make a bunch of food and you hope people show up. And it has such a failure rate. But they said that you know they would loan me 
money if they were going to loan anybody money because clearly I knew what I was doing and I was uh, still going to go do it though I knew how stupid it was right. to open a restaurant right. and so they knew that I'd be a good bet so then I went into real estate and it was just a perfect fit for my marketing and my creativity it was a great platform for me to do it creatively yeah. not do it it was never a sales job. Never. Well, don't you remember your tagline job. I came up with, which at first you did not like, yes. because of the word "not." Yes. Let's get double negative. What was this? Not business as usual. Yeah, I liked it though. It was powerful. It was fucking great. Yeah, and it fit the attitude of the branding. Yeah. You and you, you remember I found it elsewhere too. Mm-mm. Well, it's the chicken or the egg. I don't know. It's still brilliant. It was some fucking airline for uh, the Philippines. That was their thing, not yeah. business as usual. Yeah. Well, see, that's a perfect. It's a great example of like you're just saying like I'm present doing something. It's not like I'm just floating by. Do you want to be treated as just like business as usual? Come on, get in there, you know, and cattle call and sit in your chairs and right. shut the hell up till we get to where we're going. Right. Or is it like, hey, no, none of that. We're going to treat you differently. Right. And so I really liked that. And also, I had to separate myself from everybody else. And everybody here wore Hawaiian shirts and was all relaxed and you know and I felt like man if you're spending like a half a million dollars or a quarter million dollars at least put on a fucking shirt or right. something or like wear a tie or I mean it just right. seemed like you should like take it seriously it's you know? the biggest it's the biggest purchase that person will probably ever make it is yeah and I just read recently it's the, the I do it all the time so I don't think of it but it's the like third most stressful thing and I think that the it's like right above or below like death in the family or something I think it's right. right below death in the family or something like that and I was like oh my god you know that's horrible I hope people don't have that experience with me like but my whole life changed really when I met Anne I would say that was really something and where did you meet Anne? at the first El Circo show uh, first full moon concert that they had in 2000 it was July 15th mm. I remember the day mm. And um, they had three domes. Uh, it's where I met everybody. Uh, and where was it's where it? I met Yohan and oh. uh, and Rab was playing. Oh, and all of everybody in El Circo and Tifa was making all her designs and her clothing. She's gone, right? She is, yeah, yeah. sadly. And um, she also designed and made uh, our wedding outfits. No kidding. Yeah, I mean, I was... Uh, I wouldn't say I would say we were acquaintances you know I mean we knew each other and obviously it was very special to her to make our our wedding outfits and stuff like that but um, you know we weren't super close we were always in the fringe you know L Circle was kind of their own group and everything like that there's just like kind of different tribes at that time and we were just on the fringe of that but I was just going to Burning Man like literally in a month my first one with my dad with your dad? my dad is the one who found it because we used to do a father and son trip all the time yeah and so we circled Washington and did all this crazy shit in Washington. Went to the San Juan Islands, did this, did that, took, you know, did this, took a plane ride, did all these, you know, I'd always like push the limits. And I said, well, next time I want to go to Alaska and then see how far we can fly to the North Pole and then maybe land and then be like, this is your idea. Ooh. Yeah, that's what my idea yeah. was. And he said, okay, but this year or next year, I found this place and he showed me this article and said go to this website and check it out it seems kind of scary and maybe that would be a good thing too so we plan i read all about it and i i built a whole art installation around our camp and really got into it and uh i was getting ready and sewing everything and then rob the owner of the and my uh best friend would go up to uh this party 
and we were around a barrel of fire and everything and this gal with short hair came up and it was like the three of us had had the same comedy routine because Rob and I had known each other for years and and so we just our conversation flowed like it does when you have a a close friend that Mm -hmm. you just hang around it's like a brother you just like mimic almost each other you know and she just came in and it was like this triad of just like Elaine from Seinfeld just yeah totally and it was like she's you know was super cute super funny and we were all and good for me I was stoned so I was quiet (laughs) so you could could let it happen like if I wasn't stoned I'd probably been too talkative or something so I must have so I I, later on she told me you know I seemed aloof (laughs) oh so what better way to be uh, attractive than to be unattainable and aloof and really it was just stone right and uh, and so the fire kept going down and she was like well you guys aren't doing anything with it and she left and we thought wow this is weird and she came out of the mountains like out of these trees and stuff you know all backlit and everything with just all this firewood and she came down and she's like and puts down like all this firewood and we were looking at her and everybody kind of was like wow what a badass like she's beautiful and she can like set up camp and so instantly the, the coolness of her was like uh, beautiful and loves camping and doing other things so and then we ended up uh she invited me back to her her tent which is a horrible tent <laughs> it was like a one-person tent that was collapsing <laughs> so there was no real like constantly you're trying to hold a hand up to keep the tent from coming down on you but that left you with only one hand but that one kind of braced you so you had to put a foot up maybe to like be able to then maybe use both hands and we were fumbling and just laughing and having a great time and then um, we took this wonderful ride home in the back of a truck looking up at the clouds and it was just like kind of a magical night and then we dated for a while and then she had a uh, two-year-old daughter and then finally you know I was given permission to to come over and meet her daughter yeah you know and she was real responsible that way to make sure like was I really somebody who might stay and everything like that and I was so in love with Anne that I didn't ever really think of it as like oh do I want a kid or not want a kid like it was like I didn't even know that uh, you guys didn't make that child. Yeah, most people don't. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool, man. I sat down next to her, and Chris looked at me, and she goes, my couch. Totally serious. Yeah. Like, I'm like, ha, ha, how cute, and everything. And she just looks at me with her little feet, like, you know, like this on this little couch, because she's so teeny. She's like, my couch. How old was she? She's two. Uh- Establishing so boundaries like, right away. So I, I, I was on the floor for, I don't know, two weeks. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> and I wanted her to be okay. And yeah. finally something happened. I don't know what it was. We just spent more time. I tried, you know, I brought some, uh, I tried bringing cartoons and brought some that were totally too scary and <laughs> totally fucking up. And then, you know, I brought my bit of weirdness and I brought in Nightmare Before Christmas, you know, which turned out to be her favorite film and mm. is what made her the... At two? You, it, no, no. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, kind of. I mean, I think probably at three I did that. And uh, I know, but I didn't know. I wasn't like, you know, I didn't know what was appropriate. Trauma imposer. Yeah. She loved it. Yeah, um, of course. So Until she went to sleep. <laughs> no, I mean, just like. You never heard about it again? In that no, way? no. Oh. I mean, I did originally, of course, from yeah. Anne when I was. Well, what are you yeah. bringing back? And if you if you have any young children, 
and you think that Fern Gully is a good film to get, don't. It's not. There's this horrible scene in the middle where it's like this Tim Curry-ish devil comes up and he's like, it's super scary. It goes from Fern Gully to like this like... Fern Gully! Yeah, it's like suddenly a, a midnight show that you'd see with your friends that's wow. like a part of like Pink Floyd the Wall or oh, something. It's like yeah. So we're all watching it together. This is another one of my cartoon screw-ups. Rob had recommended it. And then all of a sudden it goes into that scene and she's like, turn it off! <laughs> and she, it's just like... It's like a nightmare, but um, that's how my kids were with Coraline. Oh, oh, Coraline, yeah. Oh, that's a disturbing film. Fuck yeah! I mean, it was brilliant, but it yeah, yeah, was super scary. Like I've always had a, a spider dreams from a very young age. Oddly enough, always female too. They were always female, female spiders. I would have spider dreams, like they they chip through my wall, and then um, then all of a sudden a bunch would come out, and I would wake up and I would like scream, and um, I had them all my life. My stuff was really, it was weird because I remember one time I had this giant, like, kind of like 1950s film, giant spider coming at me and it cornered me in this brick, like, New York, uh, where the, you couldn't go anywhere. It was yeah. like an alcove. Yeah. And the spider stood up and very elegantly, it was obviously a female and it was like trying to seduce me and it was very sexual in this kind of like, um, you know, so, how are you? You know, like, <laughs> right. very just like... And it was pulling on my brain. It was very scary. And I realized for a long time that then there's this whole thing attached to this distrust or this femininity or this whole, like, women are as these, like, power brokers of your heart. Like, at a young age, like, I just felt... And I don't know, like, how it worked with my mom or the... I'm not sure how that all fit. But when I was in that house I told you I lived in on Wilkes Circle... Mm. In Santa Cruz, I started painting, and I just painted all these spider things, like spider legs around me, like, and they were basically like prison bars. And another spot, like my mouth, like this face kind of open with a mouth, and it was like feeding me a spider, like force feeding me this spider. Wow. And um, and then me hanging like a spider with this chain. Well, I just kind of worked it all out in painting. I'll send you the pictures. And um, after that, I had no more spider dreams. Oh, you see, you worked it out. Yeah. I've always found that living on the fringe or on the edge, I'm always looking for what the new thing is. Like, always. Like, music, I'm always looking for that. If there's a a band that only 30 people know of and I I find that I think they're going to really make it big, then I like being there right from the get-go. Sure. I found in my life that I've been I've been in some amazing things. I was here at the flood. I wasn't living here. Yeah. I came that day. Wow. And hung out with Rob down uh, at uh, Louis. I don't I forget what the name of it was then. Until they were kicking us out because water was coming in. And uh, I was there just for that day. And then a whole next day, I went around with a video camera and filmed everything and interviewed wow. the Chamber of Commerce. And this is like after tons of beers. Uh, I was in three huge storms in Santa Cruz in the very early 80s. I was in the Loma Prieta earthquake in Santa Cruz when it happened. I was right downtown. I was a mile from the epicenter. Mm. And I was in the 71 earthquake in Los Angeles. So all these big storms and big things like like again, I travel all the way here and boom, I was in it and it was like it was like the fourth flood that I've been in, like major flood that's like killing people and stuff. But I've always tried to put myself in the, something that's happening 
culturally, I want to be a part of it early on. Like if it was the 60s, I would want to uh, be in Greenwich Village when that was taking off. Yeah, when yeah. The folk scene was there or be in San Francisco and, you know, in 65, sure. not 69. Right. It was over by then. Totally. Yeah. I mean, Summer Love was, that was it. It's yeah. all over now. Yeah. I enjoyed watching El Circo as they came together and took off and then just kind of, you know, just, you right. know, just the whole thing was really interesting to, to watch uh, and just watch this creative energy kind of produce something so cool and influence the trend at Burning Man, which influenced San Francisco, which influenced, I mean, you can go online now and get a utility belt that everybody used to make from scratch right but now they are made and sold at stores you can right. they have it already made sure. and there why is that made that's made because at burning man you have to keep everything with you at all times that's you got right your mask so you need a clip to hold your mask and you need like a little bowl uh, and a necklace with a spoon so you're kind of a monk and you are able to it's eat as you go that's right and yeah. you move around you have yeah. to have your chapstick and your water and all that. so it's just funny how it's changed fashion it's changed clothing and it's cool to be a part of interesting things in history while they're happening what's the name of your music project saint sebastian where can people find out what you're doing uh saint sebastianband.com or just on facebook my whole thing was i wanted to document musically what does it feel like when you feel panicky what does it feel like when you're about to lose everything Mm -hmm. what does it feel like when you're angry or sad or you have these emotions what would it feel like to write a song about uh this violence growing up in in you of anger and at that moment that you're feeling it what would be the music equivalent of that right your thing about it your personal soundtrack that's right it's like what is that what is what is this anger sound like what is like revenge sound like what is like complete loss of control what does that sound like so to me it was about giving a musical soundtrack kind of to that feeling and document it so like this is what it feels like when you're falling from grace and that was what's the the name of the album melancholy breakdown and that was the whole purpose of of that and that's very the video is very symbolic it has its own storyline but the video is very much um i know who everybody is i know what the song is about you know, it's tied a lot also just to being sick, you know, but right. I didn't want to make a, you know, <laughs> a right. video about about chronic illness or anything. But right. if you listen to the lyrics of the song, that's, you know, down. It's what it really is all about. How are you feeling right now? I feel great. I love you, Greg. Yeah, love you, too. You much know? love to your family, too. I love those guys. Thank you very You're much. You're super cute. Yeah. yeah. Have a great rest of your day. All right. You, too. Well, that's the show. Hope you enjoyed it. It was great to spend time with Greg. He's had a very thick life, shall we say. Lots of varied experiences. I've known him a long time, and uh, he's always had the best of intentions, and he works hard, and he's, he's a good partner and, and father and friend. And I'm, I'm honored to have known him all these years and had uh, an opportunity to spend time together. You know... The world is in a lot of hurt, and it, it, it always has been, of course, but maybe a little more innocently in times uh, prior to now. And times are becoming a lot more difficult. And I've, I've met three young people who have recently dropped out of high school uh, to do things on their own. 
uh, in their own way. And I think this is a trend. The people that live in the plaza here in Ashland, people that are roaming around with backpacks, doing it differently, more nomad-like, are, are, are potentially showing us a window into our future uh, based on uh, the direction that we are going, which is absolute self-destruction. And, and maybe that's what needs to happen. Nature will correct itself in whatever way it deems fit, regardless of uh, our consideration towards it, it will have no consideration for us because we are it and it is us. There is no separation except in our minds. And, and the longer we feel separated uh, from each other and from our environment, uh, the more difficult it's going to become for us to be able to be part of this experience. I love you all and I hope for the best always. It is all I have for us is my eternal hope that, that we will eventually do the right things by each other and, and we can definitely do better. Word to your mother's uncle. A big shout out to uh, Ricky at uh, High Siskiyou Tours. I did the tour last Sunday and it was super fun. Oh my goodness, I totally recommend this to anybody, anybody who wants to visit wineries and cannabis farms and brew haha places, uh, highsiskiyoutours.com or check them out uh, on Facebook. If whatever you're doing if is not working, there's only one way you can change that, and that's to change what you do. I am Citizen 44.